Hey, I'm Dina. I'm Nikki. And we're your hosts for CBD Madcast. CBD Madcast is devoted to the legalization of cannabis and its impact in your community. Visit us at CannabisBeyondDope.com. Hey, Jeremy. Hi. How are you today? I'm sweet. I'm glad. We're going to be having ourselves another fired up chat today. Awesome. I'm fired up. You're always fired up. <laughs> Last time we left off, we were going to introduce our guests to the concept of florigen mm. and light deprivation. Yeah. And a little bit more about how you grow outdoor because from all of the interviews I've done, all of the grows that I've seen for outdoor, you're one of the best that's out there. And I think a model that should be, I think, captured by everybody and, and everybody should put it into action because it's sustainable, it's effective, and it puts out some incredible quality flower. Who knew that you didn't have to have all these NASA-built systems to grow good weed? Right? <laughs> it's why it's called weed, isn't it? It just yeah. grows like a weed? Well, and it's a big movement right now to bring everything back to the old traditional ways of growing and what Korean natural farming is all based upon. So you don't need to go out and purchase a bottle that's marketed to you in order to achieve great results. And in fact, oftentimes, everything you need around you, and that's the principle of Korean natural farming, is probably within 10 miles. And you should probably be harvesting it. And the, really, the reason behind that theory is that there's a lot of biological diversity within that 10 miles that can give you the microbes that you need in your soil in order to create the real living soil that takes the, the larger organic molecules and breaks them down and makes them readily available to the plant on the on the plant's time clock versus the other scenario where you're marketed a bottle of nutrient, you buy a bottle of nutrient, and you are inundating that plant with food. Your feet, you're overfeeding it most of the time, which can have adverse effects down the line in the taste and the quality of the food. Then they sell you a product to flush it because you overfed it. First they sell you these products to overfeed, and then they sell you a product to clean it up because you overfed. It's overfed plants with too much ammonium nitrates, ammonium phosphates, leave colored ash, and they tend not to be as good, and they also tend not to produce as high terpenes or cannabinoid content. A lot of people consider beef to be environmentally detrimental, which it is. The, you got cows in creeks messing up the creeks, and you've got feedlots producing massive amount of, of waste, and that gets into the creeks, and that's no good. And all that methane that goes into all the, the air, they're all tootie because the they're air. eating things they're not supposed to eat. <laughs> well, and more powerful greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. However, as you get north, the sun's energy is converted more by grasses. So you don't have the vegetable diversity that you would have at a further south or an equatorial climate where you've got a vast array of wonderful things just falling off of trees and you're just consuming them. You get north and what becomes sustainable is a lot different than further south. And so there are scenarios where having a cow producing milk or having some steers to produce your beef is the most sustainable way to to eat and a lot of it's because it's local you're managing the impact on the environment and you're not part of this massive industrial commercial pipeline that is producing all these negative effects that everybody associates with cows so it's not that cows that that are inherently bad you just for can't the house them all in one place you have to sustainably raise them right that basic concept the sustainable raising of whatever mm -hmm. it is you're producing so mass agra is in the same concerning position where we have nothing but almond groves forever as opposed mm -hmm. to everybody growing their own almond tree 
or and more more of a micro scale. Exactly, exactly. And I like the idea that we can grow in a small regional area as opposed to a larger regional area. So in the greater Puget Sound versus the all of the Pacific Northwest. Because of that, you are in a situation where you're growing outdoors and you're actually participating with the seasons, with the light, mm-hmm. with the sun and all of that. And within the within that entire structure of farming, because you're a farmer. And one thing you said that stuck with me is cannabis comes from a place of consciousness. And everybody that I've ever met in this industry is doing it because of a love, because of a need, or because of some way that it has enhanced their lives and made it better. And with that, we then have all different models and all different kinds of grow and different people with their all their own ideas, but everybody had to do it in the dark. Some of the best flower that you'll ever find is from outdoors, just grown more naturally, like in Humboldt County in California when they used to do that as the only real, true outdoor grow that we saw up and down the coast. And you actually have really created a product that's at that superior level. And that's because of the methodologies. What you're talking about, the outdoor that we used to grow, especially at these latitudes, you refer to Humboldt, they grew great full term, we call it natural cycle, non-light deprivation, which we'll explain in a little bit. And they were doing it well because they were to further at a further southern latitude where the seasons were longer. Right. As you get up here, there's less genetics that can express themselves with a truncated growing season that we have. And so I did a lot of gorilla farming that was outdoor quality. And then I, my head stash indoors <laughs> until I had enough freedom to actually do light deprivation. And my first light deprivation crop was in 1996. And some of the old hippies of the Okanagan showed me their technique and they were all digging ditches, putting the plants in the ditches and rolling out plastic over the ditch. You could look across the landscape and you would never know anything was going on. It was brilliant. It was before powdery mildew. You could not do this today. Those plants would just get so much powdery mildew that they would... Why? They, Why, would it? Why wouldn't it Because then, but powdery it mildew is a systemic and it came up with genetics in the late 90s, early 2000s. Oh, okay. okay. We never had it. I never saw powdery mildew on uh, marijuana until like 04. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Because all of the genetics I had been breeding, I had never crossed with any that or been in the area even with uh, powdery mildew. So as more grows and we started going to cloning markets and just polluting our local genetics with all these pathogens then powdery mildew came around but I digress so but that was the first example of light deprivation that I had ever seen and so I took that and built straw bale things to make make it look like it was a haystack Okay. with the tarp over it okay and then but every day that tarp would come on and off and oh so you're manually covering it at a certain point in time in the evening mm-hmm. and then in the morning you're coming back and undoing it and so mm-hmm. that way you're actually creating somewhat of that turning off the light effect yes we're doing exactly what indoor growers do but we're doing it outside i've always thought about what is it that's creating that sudden expression of the flowering cycle. And so I started looking it up a a year ago or so and learned about this hypothetical molecule called fluorogen. And fluorogen is the flowering molecule, so to speak. And it's hypothetical because it's never been actually synthesized, but it is known to exist because it explains flowering. So I got really excited about this and it started shaping how my thinking about light deprivation is. So, So real quickly, there's two types 
types of weed in the world. Okay. And it's not indoor and outdoor, like a lot of people think. It is quick fluorogen release, and it is slow fluorogen release. So the slow fluorogen release, that's what happens in nature. As the fall comes and the nights get longer slowly, that longer dark period builds up fluorogen in the, in the big leaves at night, and then they go to the tips to initiate flowering and, and to express themselves as a flowering plant. Well, that fluorogen is also destroyed by light. So during the, the night might produce it, but then the day destroys it. And so you have to get over this period of where you have enough dark to produce enough fluorogen to get over the sun destroying it during the day. And once you hit that balance, or you're over that balance, then you're going to start seeing flowering in the plant. Some plants never hit that balance. Ooh. You know, equatorial plants, you grow it up, it never flowers, you wonder why. Why didn't it flower? Well, it never got enough fluorogen that it needed in order to flower. So maybe that plant didn't flower at these latitudes, but you could make it flower. And that's the other type, which is quick-release fluorogen. This does not happen in nature. Never in nature do you go along midsummer having 18 hours of light, and then all of a sudden the next day you only have 12 hours of light. You know, that doesn't happen. All the weed we love, this photo period is manipulated. And that's how we discovered how to grow such good weed indoors, is because we were going 18 hours, and then we were suddenly shifting it to a 12-hour flowering cycle. And that was just like a boost of fluorogen. It was like, it's all, you can think about it as like hormone therapy, like natural hormone therapy. We mimic that, that mechanism that indoor growers, we do the same thing outdoor. And in the middle of the summer, we're vegetating. And then when we're ready to flower, we cover it with tarps, black it out. That is just like what the indoor growers are doing. People are confused. They, many people think that the quality of the flower is determined by the light source. It really has very little to do with the light source. It mostly has to do with that sudden change from light to dark cycles. And in fact, if you're going to talk about light sources, I'm going to choose full spectrum sustainable sun than I am an HPS light bulb that has 30 milligrams of mercury in it and is pulling electricity off the dams, which are destroying ecosystems that can't even support the orcas and the sound anymore. So that's what Florigen is. That's and you've really embodied it so much that you actually have a brand that you sell under the name of Florigen yeah. so that you can put the word out and you can tell people. And all of the products that you have in your Canisol line, your Florigen line, and your Columbia Natural line, they're all such top quality even though you've put them in different price points they all have such an intensity and and when you talk about full spectrum that's really what i feel like it has over quite a few others and and even indoor and i may be that i'm more sensitive than other folks but it matters to me where things are grown and i really can feel those effects and it's real the terpene expression terpenes and what we're learning is that terpenes are expressed more completely in plants grown under the sun's spectrum of light rather than the artificial spectrums of light and we're starting to show that by testing as well and so you allude to the fact that our columbia natural line is also very high quality well that is a slow florigen plant however we've bred the genetic characteristics to flower early and a natural florigen diet yeah. where it's going to finish early and it too is also high cannabinoid and high terpene and a lot of those strains but it's that we not have, like depth that's what's like that's that. what's amazing it's it's just having its regular season regular, happening yeah. and you're getting these really intense effects out of it and that's because we're selecting very carefully the types of genetics that we do outdoor 
full term. So but that it matches with its environment yes, and, and produce to, the max Exactly. A okay. lot of people want to grow the key strains out there, the Blue Dreams, the Sour Diesels, and they just want to put them out at these latitudes. Not going to work. You might get some flower, but it's not going to be the highest quality. And so I've spent years now identifying the different genetics and breeding the different genetics and taking. So we have this strain called Juicy Fruit that I discovered about 15 years ago. Flowers in late September, mid to late September. So it already has the genetics that can give it the florigen it needs under the natural cycle. So I cross that with all of the signature strains that I already have at the farm. And so that is making up a lot of the Columbia natural line. So and we've it, taken those strains that we can only do like that. Yeah. And we've crossed them with the juicy fruit to give them the quick flowering times. And then we phenol selected. So we put you know, hundreds and hundreds of these out only to select one to become the clone for what we grow from then on. And so you'll actually see in the Columbia line very high THC numbers. In fact, often higher than, than even the other lines just because of the influence that that juicy fruit is having and because it is such a high cannabinoid content plant. And the other thing that you offer with it too is something that is in contention as far as terminology now, but it's the clean green concept. You have a clean green product because you actually have an ecosystem for your soil and for your plants. You're not bringing in nutrients, as you say, you have a living soil and it cultivates and cures and takes care of itself and keeps itself sustainable. So you're actually offering a truly organic product with a clean green certification. You're able to put that clean green on everything, but explain the importance for us, that ecosystem you've created that is clean green, Clean. So Clean Green is a certification that has a marketing program behind it. It's a certification and it's really just a validation of what I've always done. I didn't have to change anything to get Clean Green. I've always been using the principles behind Clean Green. I just finally paid the money to get the certification. <laughs> <laughs> and in fact, we'll be getting the organic certification from the WSDA for this 2019 crop. Wow, so, that is just huge. Yeah, we'll That's be huge. we'll be one of the first farms in the country in the world that with the certification. We're very very excited about so that. So deserving. That's yeah, awesome. I sat on the advisory committee that helped put that program together with the WSDA, and we're patiently awaiting the certification and to get that for this. And you've been leading crop. it again, like you say, you've been doing this forever. And I remember when we spoke on our sessions, and you can check out Jeremy through two other podcasts. We've got another fired up that's out already, but also a sessions that we did. When when we came out to the homestead and really this is just what you've been doing because you finally got a chance to be free enough to do it the right way yes that's exactly it before we were running scared we were out in the woods in the middle of the night we set up elaborate drop-off and pickup schemes you know we were out like hucking around hundreds of pounds of nutrients on our back out in the deep woods trying not to go to jail mostly and to get some product out to people but once we felt safe enough to start being able to really create the environment that we wanted because i'd also grown indoors for years because the outdoor wasn't very good and i didn't have the freedom to be able to do light depression on my land when in fact I started pretty early 96 was a risky year to start doing light deprivation in my own stead and in fact had the narcotics officer fishing at my lake and trying to like muscle his way around my land and telling me that he had the right to fish there and he knew he grew weed and if I didn't let him fish there we were gonna get busted it was like it's enough to just make you go straight into a panic attack not to mention all the times that I've just sat in the woods with choppers flying around hiding one particular time I 
remember the choppers came and we had a phone tree because we knew when they came. You would see the gas truck at the hotel. They would go through the my buddy's espresso stand. He would call me. We would call everybody else. We knew they were around before they were even in the air. And I was first on their list. So every year they would show up and they hadn't flown for a couple of years. And so I was feeling pretty confident and I had some plants up in under the trees. Oh, long story short, scared the out of me. And yeah. I have PTSD out of these things. And I ended up chopping everything down, throwing it in the well. They flew all around and, and oh, then we no. went and waited up on the hill. It was like 107 degrees that day. And we waited up the hill just waiting for the sheriff to come and he never arrived. And because we thought I was looking at the chopper with the guy with the binoculars. I could see his face. I don't know how he couldn't see my face. Right. And I was just like hunkered down like, oh, so scary. So anyways, once we finally had the ability to grow the weed sustainably, naturally, all those things, it just became so much more rich and so much of a, I don't know, just a great expression of how we should be doing things. We could no longer, you, you know, you, you started to ask, ask the question, what's my impact on the environment? And what's my impact on society? Prior to that, you could just blame the government and be like, whatever, it doesn't matter. I'm going to get weed to the people no matter what. So once we came into legal production and even gray market production, we we started to have to be much more responsible. You know, that's how I lived anyways. I was already living off grid, had an organic garden, already raised my own cattle for my own consumption. That is what led to me really being able to develop the light deprivation, which is what really changed how weed, uh, how I perceived weed and how I perceived the quality of weed. And the other really important part about light deprivation, you can manipulate the photocycle. That's all very important to create really high quality weed, but also very important how you administer those nutrients and how those nutrients get uptaken by the plant. You can just pour bottles of nutrients on things and yep, they will be there and that plant will grow and it'll look bright green and all that but it won't have the same terpene expression as a plant that's grown in living soil and so living soil you maybe heard it, it's kind of a buzz term these days but it's basically you're you're trying to reduce your inputs and you're trying to put all the big building blocks, all the organic big building blocks into the soil, and then you rely on all the microbes to break those bigger carbon molecules down into molecules that are readily available to the plant. And through that process, you create an environment that the plant isn't overloaded with nutrients. It is pulling nutrients as they're really needed, and they become available slowly. So you don't look at like, oh, I need to feed my plants. No, you need to feed your soil your soil will feed your plants it's kind of a mystery down there in the soil the interactions between those microbes are so infinitely complex that you're never gonna like tease that apart and we're such a science brain and me included that we want to understand all the reactions that occur and if we can't understand them then we just throw the whole concept out and be like oh consider it not valid I in even as a scientist I'm a trained biologist I had to give up on that and be like look we don't need to prove this works this works because mother nature is infinitely complex mm -hmm. and actually since I've adopted this way of thinking over the last 10 years I've had less nutrient problems than I've ever had and everything's sort of smoothed out I have less crop variability and you I'm created that sustainability within its environment I just kind of had to let nature do its thing and trust it a little bit yeah. rather than thinking that we have to manipulate every little aspect of the plant growth and kind of this 
gee whiz of marijuana growing where sometimes, you know, I'll go and I'll see indoor grows and there's just, there's so much technology that it's impressive on some level. It's impressive that they achieve this, God, we could grow on the moon if we wanted to. It's impressive on, on that level, but it's also missing a whole lot. And I think that you can really tell when you consume the product. And that is explainable by science. We are seeing that the cannabinoid profiles are narrower and that the terpene profiles aren't the full expression. We, we see that because, and, and you can tell, like the old timers, you know, the old pot smokers that I know, they're all like, oh, that weed just, that indoor weed just doesn't, doesn't have legs like the, like the weed I used to smoke. And I actually think that they're onto something because what they're talking about is they're talking about a not a robust cannabinoid profile. And, and the, the indoor growers, which I did for years, you, you had power bills to pay. And yeah. so you never wanted, you were always so interested in flowering times and reducing that flowering times. You might be harvesting a crop a little bit early, or you might not let it go to full maturity, or you might not grow the strains that yeah. take that full maturity. Yeah. And so what you, you end up not having the CBGs, the CBNs, the CBCs, and that whole profile, which we know work together in a synergistic effect to augment the THC to give you the effect that you feel and in fact when you don't have a lot of those other cannabinoids so to speak the THC alone doesn't last as long it doesn't have the effect you don't get the full entourage you don't right? get the whole entourage effect yeah. and you can feel that and, and you, you know. it's when you go back to your bong and because you're not stoned <laughs> you're like you know or your CBD isn't lasting as long it's as it should and as it's long. not giving yeah. you that and, effect and, you want and the old timers say it's got legs yes and I think that that's absolutely true and I think that's one of the things that we end up learning. <laughs> the other thing that it does is not just on the science side, not just on the participation side, but on the physical consumer and the retail. Now all you've got is 500 or 1,000 growers growing the same top five strains that are considered popular. And you may like the other ones that aren't as popular, but they work for you. So the diversity, even though there's a mass amount of growers, there isn't necessarily a diversity within the strains available. No, and in fact... And in fact, indoor growing and that pressure to reduce flowering has really pushed us to an area of genetics that it's very limited. And it's a are, mostly what I consider high, oh, everything hybrid. Oh, hybrid to indica. Yeah, hybrid, hybrid to, to indica. indica. We're, we're missing. And really, you you think Huge. about all of the genetics as a, as a big pie. And we're really working in like 25% of the genetics. Yeah. And at the moment, losing the 75% that are out there, that are true heirlooms, that are mm -hmm. that are true land races, that, that have never been cross-pollinated with something that came out of, out of Holland in the 80s. You know? Well, you know what's going to happen is that's going to come back as the next wave because everybody will be tired of the hybrid, so they'll However, the they're being thing. lost. They may be gone. Some people know what Strain Hunters is, you know, and then we, we had Franco out there and Arjan, and they made a great show, very entertaining to watch, but the impact of their efforts was to quicken that demise of those old land race strains, because as they went and sought out those strains, they traded for their own seed, which seemed like a very generous thing to do, but in fact was poisoning the well. And they're open pollinators, and that's what got them their land race, is that they open pollinated in a closed population for years. And that's what the definition of land race is. And so for them to exchange seed was, and these guys are smart, they knew what they were doing. Now they had it. 
nobody else is getting it. Yeah. You know? Exactly. And now and they've they... left their mark, so they're the ones that are going to be responsible for all the things coming forward, which excites them too, I'm sure. Yeah, now they 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 own the they own the heirloom yeah. and they poisoned it with yeah. all of their pollen from all their Holland based hybrids. And of course that farmer he didn't know the difference. He's like, Oh, that's so kind, you know. And then they planted them and then the pollen blew and that was it. They can never go back. You can't undo that. You can't that. undo that. You nope. can't undo that. And, and so that's the they ecosystem. would have been so much better off giving them shovels or wheelbarrows yes. or something else other than giving them seeds. seeds. Yeah. yeah. That really does speak to the impact, I think, of farming and agra. And we don't understand that this is farming. Curing anything in the soil is farming. And you're growing a farm product. And when we make those changes and we alter that ability for the plant to grow as it grew in mother nature and we start creating our own pollinations and we start worrying about being the bee and all of these things we don't know the repercussions of that that's why i love the throwback and i like the idea that we do all of the micro growing in regions in just sustainable enough for five people to take care of to feed a generous area but not too much and everybody yeah. wins because otherwise like you say we it's fun to have pollinated things cross-pollinated things it's fun to have new items but it's very scary to lose really what brought us and we don't know what we're doing yeah. to do and that we, we need to preserve those so i house about 120 different strains at a time i got about 20 of them that have no commercial value at all they're just i just know they're unique enough that i need to preserve them i'll get rid of hybrids all day like whatever recreate them but there's some strains and they typically tend to be the ones that i can't grow because they're <laughs> totally equatorial strains but that those heirloom strains are the basis for breeding programs and if we don't have those heirloom streams, then we don't. Then we're just crossing hybrids with hybrids, and eventually it's just muddy. And there's there's no. And you just end up with the. And I see this in current legal weed. You just end up with these three or four groups of marijuana, and that's it. And that's it. And that's and it. The- Profiles are all consistent within that range too, and they may not work for everybody. And that's really what was exciting about this industry. It was supposed to be exciting about this industry is that it was going to be one of those small business industries where there was small farmers. They all wanted to grow their specialty, not what the consumers expected to buy or what they think the consumer wants. And I'm saddened that they didn't hold on to in large mass their intention and their strain so that that variety stays and that care and culture of creation stays. Yeah. Well, I think with the terpene profiles, it's going to matter the color on the wheel. And people will find that that's going to be how they'll start because the education will come in. We're so a ways off too- on that. It's exciting that terpene profiles are there. Testing for them all. The labs aren't consistent enough. Yeah. Like, you know, it's I've, new science. I have 20, I was just going through all my lab tests the other day, and I have 2,700 Ooh. lab tests. Wow. Yeah. And about half of those I have terpene results for. So I've got some data to crunch and I've been starting to crunch it and it's all over, all over the map. We, it's and, so new. We don't know anything yet. That's what's exciting about it is that we're all growing together and, yeah. and in that vein because nobody knows what they don't know until they name it and then it's proven and disproven yeah. and proven and disproved. And so well, and then it's a long some, road. Some terpenes are so close together that they get mistaken. Uh, other terpenes look like other things. That so they Some terpenes look like pesticides and you get a pesticide fail. And we don't yeah. know. We don't know. We're still learning how to do the testing. Yeah, so, well, yeah. There's, a, there's a study out that says that cannabis can produce pyrethrins, which is a, a 
which is a terpene found in chrysanthemums. Yes, which, which is, is what a, they used to kill ants with. And it's a really good organic pesticide. Well, cannabis can produce it at levels higher than is allowed by the state. And so there's only really one paper out. I'm reading this paper and it looks legit. Call these people and be like, <laughs> what did you guys do? Exactly, you know? exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's great. Thank you for coming on today and doing a fired up chat with us and giving us a real explanation about farming floragen, light depth, and clean green. Yeah. Canisol's got it going on. Yeah. We're hopefully going to be the first to market with the organic standard. It'll be first in the country, if not the world. You have got so many standard. firsts. I love that. That's just great. Yeah, it's going to yes. be awesome. Look for it. Organic. WSDA organic. We're actually going to get the word organic too. That's awesome. Because for a long time they thought, oh, the feds own it. We can't use it. But the WSDA has it in their logo. Oh, and yes. So it's right in there. It's right in That's there. Perfect. And they can't tell them they can't use their logos. So Right. So we are going to get the word organic. It's not like going to be organic. It's going to be Washington Department of Agriculture or organic. organic. Yeah. You know, in yeah. a circle. In a circle. Of, but yeah. that's all right. Keep it all no, I tried to get them to go Washington <laughs> State organic. Right. Flat know? underneath. And then, yeah. yeah. And then like really big. But the Attorney General turned that down. So. Hey, you know what? It's always the next time. Yeah. You're out steps. there in Olympia all the time pushing for these things. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for making sure that you're out there being the voice that keeps integrity and understanding, awareness, and the true, really sustainable way to cultivate farming and to keep our earth happy and all of the rest of us happy. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Been living living the homestead lifestyle for a long time and live it and breathe it. There's something that's very, very special about Canisol and what you do out there. Just very special. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. This podcast is sponsored by Healthy Roots Hemp Products, available nationwide through their website at healthyrootshempproducts.com. They have CBD-infused products like their Roots Run Deep Root Butter, which is great for massages, a selection of CBD tinctures for you or your pet. All of their source material for CBD is made in Oregon, and their new product is infused honey sticks from Oregon Honey Bees. For those products and many more CBD-infused items, visit their website at HealthyRootsHempProducts.com. Follow Cannabis Beyond Dope on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And click the like button. Check out more podcasts on SoundCloud, iTunes, and YouTube. Contact us or check out all of our content at CannabisBeyondDope.com.